The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're in for a treat. Our focus today is on influence. And when I go and talk to clients and I ask them what their greatest development needs are, inevitably two words come up. One is the ability to motivate or inspire people, and the second one is influence. As I work with people, I find increasingly everyone at every level in the organization is trying to influence typically without the authority. So it's across business lines, across units, across everything, trying to get people to see the world the way you see it and to take the actions you think are relevant. That's the focus today of our show. So with me today is Richard Schell. Richard is a world-famous expert on influence, the author of one of my favorite books called The Art of Woo, Using Strategic Persuasion to Sell Your Ideas. He happens also to be a professor of legal studies, business ethics, and management at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And if that isn't enough, he's the academic director of two of Wharton's executive education programs, both focusing on negotiation and persuasion. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this one. All right. So I just have to ask you, because I know this wasn't necessarily where you started in your career, how did you get involved in influence? What drew you to this work? Sure. I I, uh, was a lawyer before I became a professor. So um, inevitably, I think people in the legal profession are mindful of persuasion as a very important tool of you know day to day work with clients with uh, you know, courts uh, with regulators and so when i when I joined the Wharton faculty, uh, I was sort of in my mid thirties and I was looking for ways to uh, learn more enough detail about those kinds of things that I could teach them. And so I sort of went to school on all this, started the Wharton Executive Negotiating Workshop uh, as my first foray out of uh, that work. And then out of the negotiation program came the Influence and Persuasion Program. So, so all three of those are linked up in interesting ways, but the negotiation part was my doorway into uh, the uh, more general concepts of influence. 
All right, I have to ask you to distinguish those two in just a minute, but it's an interesting that you say to start with negotiation as a lawyer. There's a little mini assessment that we do called the Influence Style Indicator periodically in our classroom sessions. And people who are higher in negotiations, I often find are either in purchasing or from the legal group. So I get your point that lawyers are often well-trained in this. All right, so now that story aside, um, you know, people use the word influence, persuasion, negotiate, as if they're interchangeable. Are they? And how do you distinguish between them? Great, great question. Um, there are three different ways of affecting um, interpersonal social uh, exchange, and but they are different. Uh, I think it's possible to uh, persuade someone without negotiating with them. But I don't think it's possible to negotiate without persuasion. So the way I have it, sort of three circles. The biggest circle that covers the other two is influence, this big topic that we're going to talk about today. And that, to my mind, is just about anything you do, verbal, nonverbal, accidental, on purpose, that affects other people's perceptions of you. And when you have influence, it generally means that you're bringing a fair amount of credibility to the interchange. And credibility is uh, another one of these fuzzy concepts, but uh, I, I have got it defined in my mind with the work I've done as others' perceptions of your relevant authority, your relevant expertise, your relevant competence and experience, and then finally, their perceptions that you're trustworthy. And to the extent that you have those perceptions working for you in the minds of others, you will have credibility and that gives you influence. So that's the biggest space. Right inside that, a special kind of influence is persuasion, when you offer an argument uh, on behalf of an idea or a principle or a strategy, and you offer evidence and uh, different reasons and justifications, selected, of course, to appeal to the other person so that they'll be moved to agree with you. And then a special kind of persuasion is negotiation when there's something that has to be allocated. So you're in a persuasion moment, but there's not enough of something to go around. It might be money, it might be office space or parking or priority for a project or time for uh, for a meeting. And when there's anything scarce and you have to allocate it, then some kind of negotiation process will ensue. So those influence the biggest persuasion, a special case of influence, negotiation, a special case of persuasion. Interesting idea on that one. I want to go back to your notion of influence, where you said it's anything that you do, verbal or nonverbal, accidentally or otherwise, intentionally, that affects people's perceptions of you. Why does the perception part matter so much? Uh, well, I think in the world that that I'm talking about and that um, that you work in as well, uh, people, I think the fundamental misconception that most people bring to uh, exchanges of ideas and and um, exchanges of uh, kind of uh, what we ought to do next uh, persuasion is that there is some common um, reality that everybody sees the same way and the first thing I offer in most of the workshops that I teach is um, an invitation to think about the world quite another way and instead realize that from when you're dealing with these subjects, everything is perception. And, um, and so your job is to discover the small parts where reality may be shared. Different people would have the same idea about the same subject. 
Uh, and it's much more often the case that uh, people have different ideas, different concepts. So when you're, when you're talking about a person and what my impressions of you are, they're going to be very unique to each person that has those, um, you know, that interaction with you. And some people are going to bring their own background and their story and notice something about the way you dress and, and attribute meaning to that. Someone else uh, will bring a whole set of experiences to uh, how you're speaking and attribute meaning to that. Uh, someone else, how you cut your hair. Someone else, uh, that they've already seen you on TV doing something, and so they're bringing a whole different story about you to this interaction, none of which you know. I mean, it's all happening in other people's heads. So uh, a lot of, I think, what makes people effective is the humility to not think or to not impose a sense of, I know what reality is and everybody else sees it the same way, but instead go, I only know my own perceptions. My job is to investigate what other people's perceptions are and then see where we find uh, connections. Wow, I love that. The humility to admit I don't know everyone's reality, I only know my own reality. Right, and it's very hard to remember that because we all operate with a lot of efficiencies in our in our mindset and we have to assume other people see things pretty much the same way to drive a car for example uh on a highway uh or to operate a phone or whatever so there's a lot of things going on in our worlds that are working because they're pretty well coordinated but when you get down to actually persuading someone or influencing them to do something uh you're now at the very granular level of perception and uh, the, the the wise move is to uh, make the assumption that you really don't know anything, and so let's investigate. All right. Now I get why you say incredibility. credibility is so important. Um, I love the framing there of this one. I know it's true also in my own experience that the more people react to you in a positive frame, the easier it is to persuade them to do what you want them to do or to influence them to do what you want to do. <laughs> Okay, so let me ask the hard question on all of this. So I get that, however, if I bring my own understanding of my reality and I don't impose that on someone else and I try to understand where we agree on perceptions and where we disagree on perceptions, let's talk about one of the most difficult places of all in corporate life and that's the matrix. Mm. Where I think you're set up to have two different points of view intentionally, regional, product line, global, non-global, um, and you're always influencing in that one. So what's your advice on managing in a matrix? I, I actually think it's everybody has their own favorite metaphors. Um, to help them understand what's going on. Sometimes I'm a chairman of a department at Wharton, and sometimes I think, uh, you know, when someone's behaving exceptionally unreasonably, I just sort of think, well, you know, I'm going to treat them as if they were one of my children, and then it'll probably work pretty well because uh, they're not behaving as an adult, so I'll try to work it that way. And that helps sort of, you know, bring some compassion to the process. The, um, in the matrix, I think you're dealing with different tribes, so if you really think and, and uh, in your mind maximize the differences that tribes would bring, they have different languages, different cultures, different rituals, different uh, mindsets, different training, uh, different vocabulary, then you'll appreciate the difficulty of crossing the matrix instead of being frustrated by saying, but we're all one company, everybody should be whatever. Uh, because I think... Um, 
that's where the mistakes get made is when you make assumptions that um, that everybody has more shared values than you really do. Now, again, you may find there are quite a few shared values, but if you start by assuming fewer, then you'll do the work to discover what they are and not make a mistake by assuming one's there that isn't there. Uh, so I like to, you know, I work in a matrix. I'm a, uh, we have 12 departments at Wharton, finance, accounting, marketing. My department is kind of off on the side. Legal studies and business ethics is uh, the normative sort of idea uh, group rather than the analytic group. And so I'm very, very, very aware of uh, when I cross the matrix, I have to think much more about data. If I want to be persuasive, I have to bring arguments related to evidence that, you know, it's got some statistical preparation behind it. If I want to, you know, uh, do a good job of getting someone with my program. So, so I, I, I consider it my responsibility to make all those efforts to communicate with them in their own language. So that's interesting argument here. The notion on the matrix is it's never going to get any easier than it is. And that if you think about it as a tribe, not for the purposes of changing the tribal structure, but just embrace the fact that it does have a tribal structure and now get on with where are we similar, where are we different, and how do I approach you within your own language in one way. Yeah, interesting I'm, I'm, approach. Yeah, I'm very pessimistic about breaking matrices up. I don't think it actually succeeds very often. Yeah, I don't think it does either. I think we have a matrix because we have some competing alternatives. So, Richard, I get the sense when I when you're thinking about influence and persuasion and negotiation, all three together is a bucket, that the starting point really for you every time has to do with this perception, how other people perceive me, how I perceive them, where the similarities in our worldview, our experiences, our understanding of reality are in common and where they're in quite a disagreement. And, and, and to sort of do the work it takes to, uh, to make aspects of yourself salient to the other person, sometimes even before you have a meeting, so that they know um, from some source uh, that you do have some knowledge or you do have some experience. Uh, maybe someone who does trust you gives a good word on your behalf about your trustworthiness because they're, they can't read your mind. Uh, they can only bring their own uh, perceptions, and so it's helpful if uh, you've uh, done a little pre-work to um, prime their perceptions because the other thing that happens right away is people bring expectations, and then the confirmation bias will kick in, and they'll start looking for confirmation of whatever their expectations were. So if they have a perception going in uninformed that you don't really know much about what they're doing, but in fact you know quite a bit, even a small misstep they'll take as evidence that you don't know, whereas if they think you do know, then the small misstep looks exceptional and they're confirming their hypothesis that you're actually informed. So it's very important, uh, the, the sort of uh, preliminary groundwork that you can lay so that other people are prepared to hear you. That's incredible. I, uh, I love the framing of this one. And we're right back to this notion of my brand and what my brand is about and what it represents to use sort of a common vernacular around this one. How people see me, what they expect of me when I walk in the room, and how can I um, prime that to use your word in the direction that I want to go. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back with me today is Richard Shell. 
Richard is an expert in influence, um, a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of one of my favorite books on influence called The Art of Woo. When we come back, Richard, I want to talk about the barriers to influence. I want to talk about what gets in our way of being effective on influence in addition to this whole perception piece, and more importantly, what we can do about that. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Richard Schell. Richard is an expert in influence, an academic or a professor at the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School, and the author of one of my favorite books on influence called The Art of Woo. Using strategic persuasion to sell your ideas. In other words, how do you win others over? Now, we've just been talking about Richard's framework on influence. And for Richard, the larger story is influence. And within that persuasion is a particular subset of influence having to do with making an appealing argument, giving evidence reasons. And then within that subset of persuasion, negotiation is a separate, um, is a single entity or a kind of persuasion. 
All right. Correct. So we were talking about the notion that the people's perceptions of you, what they expect of you when you start conversations, really drives how things go. So now, Richard, I want to turn and talk about why is influence so difficult? And you have this notion that there's particular barriers that get in, get us in trouble. Sure. Uh, thank you, Wanda. The um, we did a lot of research, uh, my, my co-author Mario Musa and I, in, um, in developing the frameworks and summarizing the research uh, that we brought to the Art of Wu. And I think one of the most important um, pieces of work we were able to do was to really go uh, find the 20% of the problems in influence that make 80% of the difficulty in it. And we came up with uh, five distinct barriers that are often invisible, but that are the things getting in the way and, uh, and making it hard for other people to follow uh, whatever your uh, advice is or what your suggestions are, or why it is that uh, they are, they're not buying your argument. Two of these barriers relate to their perceptions of you as a person, and three of them relate to their perceptions of the idea that you're trying to sell. So, um, so there are really two kinds of barriers. The, on the first one, uh, the first barrier is your relationship with them. And I know that's a subject that you're very passionate about. And, um, and you know, big question is, uh, do they know you? If they know you, do they like you? Or at, are they at least neutral on whether uh, they like you or not? To the extent that you have any kind of negative relationship or uh, bad uh, event that's happened in the recent past or something, uh, uh, a relationship taint because of you're associated with someone they don't like, then they immediately put a screen up and they're going to filter what you say through that negative relationship perception and it's going to be harder to get through. So that's, you know, that's the first one and that's the most, that's the reason we spend a lot of time in social interchange building rapport, trying to find common ground, just sort of building the foundation for a conversation where we're going to listen to each other uh, and that relationship piece is, is uh, number one. Number two, the second barrier is credibility, which, uh, which has these different dimensions. Credibility is how much weight do they give? They're listening now, but how much weight are they giving to what you say? Because you're the one saying it. And credibility, again, is just do they think you have the right um, formal authority to be uh, speaking on this question? Do they think that you have enough uh, expertise to be speaking with authority on it? Do you have some competence or experience that gives them some um, reason to believe uh, what you're saying? And then finally, have you acted in a way that promotes trustworthiness so that they have a sense that you're telling the truth or that if you're don't know something, you'll tell them you don't know so that they can rely on you as a, as a reliable conveyor of information. So the second barrier is this credibility, which has all those little facets in it. Now let's assume that you're okay. You've got a relationship. Uh, you're pretty credible. Now there's still going to be uh, some problems with the idea itself. And the three barriers that come out of that uh, examination are number one, uh, are you offering an idea that violates one of their core beliefs? Uh, if you're uh, coming in to uh, try to persuade them to, um, uh, you know, change their marketing strategy and focus on China instead of America, and their experience, expertise, whole career has been spent 
uh, on America and they think China is the Wild West, then they have a fundamental belief about that. And you're going to have a big problem getting over that belief to uh, get your idea in. They're going to be finding all kinds of reasons to reject it. The same way someone might, if they believed in, um, uh, you know, a visitor from another planet or climate change one way or the other or any fundamental worldview, very hard, almost impossible to change a belief. So that's, that's, a, that's the hard granite one. The next one are a barrier with respect to their needs and interests. So if you're asking them to do something that will mean they have to move or give up some money or resources or diminish their power in some way, uh, then they're going to be inclined to find reasons to object to it because they're going to be worse off if they go with your program. So an interest barrier uh, can be a, a very tricky one. And if you have both going at the same time, you have not only a belief barrier, but also an interest barrier. Those are the ones that feel like it's impossible. Everything, we offer them all the evidence, we offer them all the arguments, they just keep saying no. And they're saying no because you're asking them to change a belief or to violate their own interests. So it's, uh, it's their explanations for this. And then the final of the five barriers is very simple. It's just communication. Are you speaking a language they understand? If you're an engineer, uh, are you um, are you just speaking geek to these people, or have you have you made the effort to speak about customer relationships? If you're talking to the sales force, or talking about uh, profitability, if you're talking to the uh, to the to the strategy people, so uh, these five barriers all together: relationships, uh, credibility, beliefs, interests, and communication. All are the things we teach people to identify. Uh, begin the removal process, lower these barriers so that when you speak, they'll hear you. And uh, when they hear you, they'll believe you. So I get in the first segment, you were talking about the notion that it's a matrix is often like tribes and like tribal behavior. And I get the sense now where the tribe comes from. So one is, do I even know you? You know, how comfortable I am with your kind of people. So those are the first two barriers that you described. But the next three, the barriers around the idea that it violates their core belief, it's against their personal interest, and it's in a different language, you really do begin to get the sense of the tribe, both in what they believe, in their interest, and in their language. Yeah, I mean, in my, again, back to, you know, my my little academic world at the Wharton School, um, there are the finance uh, department, uh, you know, they believe They have a certain set of beliefs about the economy and how it works. They have a certain set of beliefs about uh, social science and statistics and and the use of those tools to understand the world. And that's a a very tribal uh, language with a very tribal set of beliefs. And uh, we're over here and we're lawyers and we see the world very differently. Um, You know, it's easy. The easy road is to blame the other people for not understanding you. The more responsible, if you want to be a genuine person of influence, way to behave is to go to the trouble, as you would if you visited Japan or you visited uh, uh, Hong Kong, to understand a few words of their language, to understand uh, a little bit about their belief system and why they have the shrines they do and who they you know, honor in their history, and uh, and then uh, you know try to understand what how they think about their own interests and needs, uh, so that when you offer things, you're actually offering things that they value and not uh, not things that you value. 
Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the idea of tribes and these five barriers line up very nicely. It, it sounds, as you're describing that, it sounds almost like marketing, that I learn what your needs are and learn what your beliefs are. I learn how to speak to you in a way that you understand. It makes it easier to market to you. But then again, we could argue that marketing is another version of influence. All right. So come back. How do we take, you know, give us the top three things to do here to make a difference on these barriers? Well, you know, this is some of this is old news and and nobody uh, is going to think it's uh, earth shattering because the first thing you have to do is prepare better. <laughs> uh, but it, it always amazes me. I just finished this week. Uh, we had a four-day program on influence that I taught here at the Wharton Executive Education Center, and we had, you know, executives from all over the world um, coming in. People from, you know, Coca-Cola in South America and Owens, Illinois, and Europe, and you know, all these uh, different folks from uh, different parts of industries as well as uh, from, you know, different ages and expertise areas, and. You know, at the end of the day, what we taught them was how to prepare better. Uh, and that means understanding these barriers, understanding what credibility is, and then doing the work that it takes to make the next meeting or the next uh, interchange or the next casual social event uh, more, pre- you know, more, uh, more likely to advance the ball uh, I, a lot of people at the end of the week, we say, well, what did you take away from this week? What are you going to do next week to advance your interest? And, you know, many people say, I'm going to start paying attention to who I, who I have lunch with. Uh, I'm going to deepen the social capital that I already have. I'm going to invest in expanding my social capital so that I know more people in different areas and boundaries, you know, span some boundaries in my organization so that I don't just hang out with the people in my own tribe, but I get to know people in others. The, um, the sort of the social aspect of persuasion and influence is so critically important that a lot of people realize, and, and you know, I think it's personality. I think certain, certain, um, uh, professions and specialties attract introverts especially technical things and people who are able to solve problems uh, in small groups tend to attract people who are not socially um, gregarious. And yet influence, broadly speaking, has to do with being able to reach out to people you don't know that well and connect with them. And so it takes a little emotional labor for an introvert to be more socially tuned and to make the effort to get to know people that they don't know or know uh, people they know only a little and know a little better. So that's a, that's a, that's a huge uh, advance. And then my own, my own thing is attitude. I, I believe if you aspire to be a person of influence and not, not just an important person, but, an important, but a person of influence, that means someone who, when they show up, other things begin to happen better. People listen more. People are more motivated to solve problems. And you bring uh, a set of frameworks as well as your own expertise uh, to advance the ball. Uh, And then finally, just an attitude of humility. Um, You're not the smartest person in the room. You're not the person who has all the best ideas. You're just the person who's there to help this influence process uh, and engage with others to discover what it is that might be the best idea or might be the smartest and shortest path to get out of the forest. Uh, I think 
I think attitude, preparation, it's stuff like that that I think are the hard work, but and they they need to be habits. Um, but that's what makes the difference. All right, so we are right back to the quality of the relationships that you have and the ways that you can talk to other people. So just to summarize, we're going to take a break here, but just to summarize, five big barriers. One is the relationship I have with people and whether that's a positive one or not so positive one. Um, Two is the credibility, which is the weight that I bring, my authority, my expertise, my experience, my trustworthiness, my reputation, in effect. And then three things about the idea. Does the idea violate somebody else's core beliefs? Does it make their their personal interests or group interests more difficult, worse off? And then the fifth is the communication. And the ways out of this are preparation and attitude and humility. I love it. When we come back, um, I want to talk about how, let's go take this in the positive frame, how can you successfully pitch an idea? With me today is Richard Schell. Richard is faculty member and professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of a book on influence called The Art of Woo. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Richard Schell. Richard is a professor of legal studies, business ethics, and management at the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania, and an expert in negotiation and persuasion, and in fact has written books on this, as well as directs Wharton's executive programs on negotiation and persuasion. So we've been talking two things that kind of stand out from the conversation thus far. One is that notion in the modern global matrix organization, it really is a bit of different tribes and that we are constantly working across different tribes. Equally, the barriers to effective influence really are fivefold, two having to do with how people see me, their relationship with me, and how they see my credibility, and three having to do with the idea that I'm pitching and whether that's violating their core beliefs is against their personal interests or group interests and needs and whether we even speak the same language. All of those really, really insightful in terms of how do you begin to think about being more influential, including how do you prepare for um, influential conversations. So, Richard, now let's shift just a bit and talk about pitching an idea. So, let's say I have a great idea that I think the company absolutely should do. We'd all be better off. I've done my homework. How do I go about pitching that idea so it's effective? Okay. Um, that, of course, is uh, the, art, the art and science of pitching is something that um, we all need. Uh, we're all idea sellers in one way or the other. Um, you know, they perfected it in Hollywood when they pitch uh, new programs uh, or ideas for new movies. Uh, we tend to think of it as a sales art, so people who are in sales are trained in this pretty extensively. But what we don't think of uh, as uh, being uh, as intimate related with it is just trying to persuade someone in the next office uh, or uh, your boss uh, about, you know, how to allocate the budget or, uh, uh, you know, whether uh, whether we ought to uh, uh, have an off-site instead of have the retreat in the offices or, you know, things like that. So, in the context of our research for The Art of Woo, the book, um, what we found was there was a set of um, subjects which once upon a time were taught in every school, in every university. They were the core curriculum, and you couldn't graduate from school without mastering these. And in the last 70 years or so, they've been entirely forgotten and lost. It's an amazing phenomenon. It's almost as, as if uh, they've, they've taken this area of wisdom and buried it in the ground and it disappeared. And the subject matter is called rhetoric. <clears throat> and it's been around since the ancient Greeks and Romans, and it used to be the foundation for education in the 19th century and the 17th century, but no, no more. So in the, in the, in the uh, science of rhetoric, there is a form, different forms of argumentation different ways of making pitches for different problems. And the one we picked and that we write about and that I think is the most useful for executives these days and for people in communities is uh, the form of argument that you need to use if you want to be effective in trying to get somebody uh, to think about what to do next. Uh, what should we do next? And that's a particular kind of problem. And when you're trying to persuade someone about what to do next, there's a four-step uh, four-stage way to make the pitch. First, you have to um, 
articulate what the problem is that is prompting you to make some change. Uh, uh, I uh, worked uh, recently with the University of Pennsylvania and its surrounding community, because I lived in, in the surrounding community, to try to get Penn to be a more active a participant and partner in the community uh, with uh, economic development ideas and education. And so in that, uh, we're trying to get the university to reallocate resources. That's the action we want, and that's what we want to do next. So the first step was uh, to propose to them the problem, and the problem was the neighborhood uh, was becoming a liability for the university. The university needed to step up and support it, or it would be injuring the university. So uh, problem, uh, uh, step one, articulate a problem in the way they would understand it. Number two, now we have a problem, um, useful to understand how we got here. So what are the causes of that problem? Uh, uh, And the causes in my little example were uh, a uh, a shift in demographics around the neighborhood uh, and, um, uh, you know, more and more students surrounding the, the, the area were uh, were not taught very well about how to behave in an urban environment and lots of tensions were being created and so on. So we kind of made a list of the causes and there were sort of budgetary problems in the city itself. So P, what's the problem? C, what's the cause? And then third step, A, what's your answer for this problem? And uh, so we prepared a very a succinct set of recommendations on what the university needed to do to invest in one of the local schools, to support mortgages in the area, to put a better security force uh, on the ground around the university to uh, provide a a police presence, um, and so on. And then the last and final step is uh, argue about, you know, to discuss and, and support your answer with evidence that it is the best one of all the alternatives because it has the highest net benefits. So P, problem, C, cause, A, answer, N, net benefits. And that makes a nice little acronym, PECAN, like the nut. And that those four steps are the way the mind thinks about how to decide what to do next. That's a way to organize people's thinking in a group so that you know that everyone's with you at every step of the way. Because if you walk into a meeting and you, and you say, here's our answer, but three of the people in the meeting don't even think there's a problem, and the fourth one thinks the problem is something else, you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to start by saying, here's our perception of what the problem is, and get discussion and get agreement that, you know, that, that we can define the problem this way. Discuss uh, some elements of how we got here so people uh, have a sense of context. Present your answer as a feasible solution and then defend it as the best solution uh, compared to alternatives and the status quo or doing nothing. And in general, that four-step process is the best, most economical, and most logical way to make a pitch, no matter what it is you're trying to pitch. And the final point about this that's beautiful, it can work in an elevator. So if you're on the you know, you find yourself with FaceTime before a decision maker in your company and you've got 22 floors and you've got 22 floors worth of elevator ride to go with them to the top floor, you can tell them what the problem is, tell them how you got here, give them them an idea of what your answer is and give two or three reasons why it's the best solution net-net. And by the time they get off the elevator, they've had a chance to be exposed to the whole argument. 
love that. Pecan, I love that as an elevator pitch. Now, let me be a little of the devil's advocate on this one, Richard, because there's a lot that has been written and described about the emotional side of appealing to other people. You're describing pecan as a very rational approach, the causes, the reasons, the evidence, and so forth. How do emotions play into this? Well, uh in the book and in our course, which we just finished, uh, we actually don't call it just pecan. We call it pecan plus. So there's a little plus sign after the end. And the plus is for how to make each of these steps vivid. And so the emotion plays into it at every level. Um, the, uh, the problem has to be uh, uh, demonstrated, depending on what the kind of problem is, with a degree of urgency. So there's probably uh, a metaphor or uh, uh, an emotional uh, uh, tone to the way you're conveying it that will convey that urgency. Uh, and, and so it's not just that the university, in my little example, the university is turning its back on the neighborhood and the neighborhood's falling apart. It's that the university rankings will fall uh, in uh, in U.S. News and World Report, if we don't address this, and the time for addressing it is 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 short because uh, we're at a critical juncture. So those are emotional appeals underlining what the problem is, and at every step, what you do is try to find the connective emotional level, and very often it's in an image, or in a word, or in a metaphor that will connect your audience to what it is you're trying to convey at each step of those uh, four steps. So, so the, uh, the pecan is the outline. It's like the structure uh, or the skeleton of the building, but the emotional appeal, the, <clears throat> the metaphor, the, the language you use, the sense of urgency you convey, that's uh, the decorations, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the actual uh, ornaments that go in and make it a, an appealing argument. Great. All right. I love this. So the notion, you know, let me see if I put this all together in some kind of integrated framework quickly, that I have to uh, get people to see me as a person that they want to deal with. So I'm going to do that in terms of the quality of the relationship, and I'm going to do that in terms of the credibility. I have to do my homework to ensure that I understand the barriers that are present, particularly the barriers around the idea. So the languages, the beliefs, the interest and needs. And then I have to have my proposition in a framework that actually reaches people. So I want to be able to tell the problem. I want to articulate the causes. I want to have an answer and I want to give some evidence for the net benefit. And each of those I want to do in a way that is vivid to the other person, that uses the language of the other person, and that connects with the other person's perspective on the world. Yeah, let me let me give one more quick example because okay. you're absolutely right. You've done a great job summarizing it. I was the chair of a committee that spent two years recently revising and completely rehabilitating the MBA curriculum for the Wharton School of Business. It's a huge program, uh, one of the best in the world, and my job as the chair of this committee was to come up with a brand new design uh, with new courses and new programs and, you know, big, 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 big. Uh, job. So when uh, it came time to update the faculty, there are 250 faculty on uh, the, the ideas we were considering and the progress we were making. Um, my job was to sort of uh, put it all in a larger context, but 
my audience are all social scientists. They're economists, sociologists, psychologists. Uh, uh, they're all people who do empirical research on all these different facets of business. And in order for us to be persuasive to them and uh, get them on board so that they understood what we were doing, it was very important that we collect huge amounts of data through surveys and uh, questionnaires to alumni and recruiters and, uh, you know, people in different stakeholders. And because I'm a lawyer, I'm not a social scientist, uh, I was very happy to rely on other members of my committee who were of the same community as the audience here. And we would devote um, half an hour, 45 minutes, to making these very detailed empirical presentations on the surveys that we were conducting with all kinds of regression analyses and data points. And I didn't understand half of it, but the audience loved it. And they would get into it and start asking questions about this and that, that, um, that meant that they were engaged. So we were speaking their language by using all this data. Now you would say it's 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 sort of dry and and uh and sort of boring uh in an ordinary uh way, but to them it was the most exciting part of the presentation. Uh my job was to get up and say, um, you know, if we don't change, we will no longer be a top business school. Stanford has changed, Harvard has changed, Chicago has changed, Wharton has not changed. If we don't change, we will lose our status as one of the top business schools. Now, that's not an empirical, an empirical argument. It's an argument from status and prestige. But that also had a lot of appeal. But that's a much more um, emotional appeal, and that's the kind of thing that I'm better at framing. So I would step up for that part of the presentation. Uh, so so different, different uh, languages, very, very important to use in, uh, depending on the audience, for each step of these four steps. Okay, fabulous. All right, so, and I get the sense of how all this works, you know, the that I am having, I'm using the language, to come back to that frame, of another group in order to appeal to them. And to put it in a way that they'll understand it, respect with it, and as you say, engage with it. Now, let's turn to the last half of this one, the last tiny component here, which is about commitment. Right. And getting commitment. And everybody always says, I need to get commitment, I need to buy in. How do you do that? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's huge. Uh, because if you've done all this work and influenced and persuaded and used your structured argument and provided all the evidence and, you know, been effective emotionally and all that, and then they say yes, but they don't really mean it. They haven't really thought about it. The next day they wake up and go, nah, I changed my mind. Let's not do it after all. Then you've done nothing but wasted your time and everybody else's. So the commitment part is the part very often people neglect because they think all they got, you know, the, the goal was to get an agreement, but the goal is not to get an agreement in any kind of effective influence event. It's to get a commitment. So what is a commitment? A commitment is, um, first of all, an action. So I, I like to say if you, if, if, if at the end of a meeting, no one's agreed to do anything, you're, you haven't really done anything at the meeting. Uh, so people um, uh, tend to prioritize by virtue of the things that they have to do. Uh, and so the, the first level of commitment is what actions have they committed to take. And then on top of the actions, you, uh, you layer accountability. 
So that means it's not just an action, but it's an action someone's watching. There's a deliverable, it's on time, it has a certain due date. Um, so now we have uh, an action with some accountability, and then the final thing you layer on top is an audience. So we have an action, it's accountable, and people are watching. And if you don't do it, your reputation will suffer. Uh, now, we need, there's no such thing as a perfect commitment because, you know, Hurricane Katrina comes and nobody could do what they promised to do because there was a hurricane. But there are better commitments and weaker commitments. And my, my view about a, a person of influence is that they go for the best commitment they can get. So actions, accountability, audiences. Um, and then, you know, as a, as a final, final touch, just do a quick check in your head. Does this person have anything to lose if they don't do it? And if they have nothing to lose, then you have a weak commitment. If they have a lot to lose, you have a strong commitment. If they have something to lose, you've got a pretty good commitment. Uh, now, what might the something to lose be? The something to lose could be reputation, if that's where the audience comes in. The something to lose may be you've made a proposal which is actually in their interest, so if they don't follow up, they themselves will uh, have fewer people working for them or less money or more, fewer options or more time uh, that they have to work on weekends or whatever it is. Um, the something to lose could be pride or, um, or even self-esteem. Uh, that they let themselves down uh, by not uh, following through in the way that uh, they, they promised to. So, um, you know, the, the, the most critical and sort of heavy-weighted commitment are the ones where someone gets up in front of a big audience and says, we promise to do this. They are going to feel the weight of that commitment in a way that's totally different than someone who just whispers it to a friend in the hallway and that social expectation can create a tremendous amount of, of uh, the fear of loss, of, of pride, uh, reputation, and, and being a trustworthy, being a person of your word. Um, so I like to try to get people who I want to make sure are committed to an idea. I like to get them in front of other people uh, and have them uh, discuss what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. So that way they've actually made a public declaration in front of an audience, and that tends to be really, really effective in making sure that they follow up. Um, so that accountability, I, you know, quick, quick example if we have time. The, uh, there was a woman who was having a lot of trouble getting people to do volunteer work. Uh, it was a kid, kids program on the weekends. They would promise to come but then not show up on Saturday morning, and the bus would leave with a lot of kids and not too many adults. She solved the problem by making sure that when the person promised to come, that they would bring one component of the lunch that they would serve. So one person brought the, the hamburgers, one other person brought the, uh, the vegetables, someone else brought the, the charcoal to make the hamburgers. So they all knew that if they didn't come, the kids couldn't have lunch. It meant all of them had to be there to put it together. And the attendance, 100%. That's what a great example, Richard. And it reminds me, last week on the show, Neen James was talking about time, um, her phrase, folding time, how do we improve the effectiveness of our use of time. And she talked about some of the same things, of making a commitment to a large group of people and announcing it out that you're going to do this has a funny way of making you set your priorities so that you're actually aligned behind getting it done. Very interesting. 
All right, so I get commitment, just to summarize again, because there is an action that has been agreed to, not because people have said yes. That means we have to have thought about it enough to be committed to that action. There's accountability, meaning that there's a time and a deliverable, and we've made note of that, so it's not just an elusive somebody in somebody's memory somewhere, and then there is an audience, and in some ways, the more the merrier, a way that if I don't follow through, I'm embarrassed or hurt my reputation or some version of that. Fascinating. Richard, great show today. Lots of tips. I think the thing that resonates the most with me as I look back is this notion of thinking about the matrix as a tribe and that individuals within the tribe have their own beliefs and their own language and their own rituals and their own values. And that funny, the biggest barriers to influence and effectiveness of influence really has to do with different beliefs different sets of needs and interests and different language. The more work I do in preparation to go to that meeting or conversation, the more effective I'm likely to be with influence. And then finally, this notion of building to commitment. So thank you for being here, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Wanda. All right. So next week, uh, we will continue with this theme on influence. Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.